Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight we're doing a second lecture called The German Madness in the Middle Ages, Part 1. And last time we concentrated, as you saw, on the beginnings of these uh, unfortunate phenomenon, which are, I remind you are still with us today, uh, the blood libels and specifically, and similar accusations. And they took place in uh, France and in that colony of France at that time called England, because in the 10th, after 1066, England was for quite a while a, uh, a colony of Fran France because it was ruled by French uh, kings and uh, in the Plantagenets. Now, uh, the scene shifts to Germany, which in the Middle Ages was called the Holy Roman Empire. Let's take a look at the first slide. And as you can see over here in the map, it's a lot bigger than Germany today. There was a single state that for many centuries occupied the whole of Central Europe. Look, look how big it is. What you see over is all Germany, a big chunk of France today, is Switzerland, is a lot of Italy. Do you notice, and this will be part of our story, that really the Holy Roman Emperors, especially during the time I'm going to be speaking about, uh, had all of Italy except the middle. The middle was called the Papal States because the idea was that, it's very unclear and there are a lot of lies about this, but Charlemagne, when the Pope crowned him as Holy Roman Emperor, said, I'll give you a, a chaluk of Italy for you to run as your own little kingdom. And for centuries, there were battles between emperors versus popes over how much of this the pope should rule, and should he rule everything under the emperor, or should the emperor be under him, because he's the religious one, and so forth. So, and there's the Czech Republic. So the Holy Roman Empire was quite a large area, even though it had nothing to do with the old Roman Empire of uh, you know, classical times. And why am I interested in this? A lot of Jews live there. In fact, Ashkenazic Jews means the Jews live in France and in this. Again, term Ashkenaz in Jewish talk means the Jews who live here in France and here primarily, somewhere or other in what you call the uh, Germany, but that's called the Holy Roman Empire. I would repeat before I move on, a lot of what they call France today at that time was really part of Germany, which is why you've had all these wars over centuries. Just to give you an example, Alsace-Lorraine, places like that, were German territories. They were part of the Holy Roman Empire for many years until French aggression conquered and added it to France. So Europe has its uh, you know, history of stealing and grabbing. That doesn't stop the French from being holier than now until <laughs> today, but welcome to Europe. Now, um, that means that for many centuries, the Jews live under what's called the imperial system, the system of the Holy Roman Empire. And the problem is that even though I picked a map which shows you the whole blob, really it's a whole bunch of little medinas, a whole bunch of little states ruled by the Duke of this and the Prince of that, and everybody would like to be his own ruler, a lot of them would like to be the emperor themselves, and the guy on top has to sit on them. From the Jewish point of view, they always want a strong emperor, because the Jews, and this is true till today, always require a strong government. And if you want to know why they require a strong government, look at Europe right now. They can't stop the riots attacking the synagogues. The Jews don't want that. They want a country in which nobody can run amok in the streets, and if they do, the police come out in big force and stop them. Okay? Uh, we have a president in American history, William McKinley. One of the reasons he became president was when he was governor of Ohio. It was a big labor strike. And he called out like 50,000 soldiers. And, you know, like a, a gigantic amount. And then the rioters went away. And he said very famously, when the government has to appear, it has to appear in the form of a monster. Okay? So notice that usually it's better, let's have no soldiers at all. Correct? Let's have nice and quiet. But if it's necessary, you got to do it. You can't just have a little here and there. And if you're Jewish, particularly then, if there's not a strong law and order, as the Pirkei Elvis puts it, then uh, people get swallowed up by the neighbor, in this case the minority, will get swallowed up by the Christian majority. That's the way it goes. And so the Jews always pr prefer a strong emperor 
if possible, or at least a, a strong local ruler for the purpose of law and order. However, there were almost insurmountable difficulties of being a strong emperor over such a huge territory and such a vast and complicated realm. Part of it is in Italy, part of it is in you know, northern uh, Germany, and part of it is in the central, and every time the emperor suppresses a rebellion in Italy, he's got to run back to Germany, and so on and so forth. And the princes can get together and maneuver and, and, and organize against them, and then he's got to organize the other princes against them. This, what I just described, is what happened through most of the Middle Ages. In the period we're talking about, um, where the first incident that we're going to be directing our attention to tonight happened, it was a time when there was a fairly strong imperial system. In the 1100s was one of the most famous uh, strong German emperors, Frederick Barbarossa, okay, who uh, is actually famous in German history because there were a lot of people who tried to revolt, and he crushed it, and he imposed a single rule, and one of those things he said was, I guess, you leave the Jews alone, because they belong to me. Right? It's, it's my bees, and they make my honey. So get your stinking hands off of them. And, and the Jews were happy about this. You get it? That that's what they need. There's no democracy over here. If it was up to democracy, local demagogues, as we'll see, will organize the locals to kill the Jews. So the Jews can't afford a democracy in that sense. Right? We're not talking about Thomas Jefferson over here. And so what you need is a strong person at the top who perhaps for his own pocketbook reasons will enforce law and order. And during the 12th century, as they call it, uh, the Jews had it okay. Uh, they practiced their religion. They even developed old Torah culture. Um, they had communication with one another. And the Christian population left them alone because you could get in trouble for breaking the law. By the 1200s, the empire is really being torn apart by fights between the emperor versus the nobles and the fights between the emperor and the pope, as I just described before. Because who's the top dog? The Pope always said like this, you are under God, and I'm God, or I'm the representative of God over here, so kiss my feet. And I mean that. And, uh, and, and by the way, many times the Emperor had to kiss the Pope's feet. And it's a very famous incident in the late 1000s in in, in, when the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV had a machlokas with the Pope at that time, and the result was that the Pope won, and he had to go to the castle in Canosa in northern Italy in the middle of the winter and walk around barefoot around the castle till the Pope deigned to come out and let him kiss his feet. There were other times when the guys <laughs> strung up the Pope, you know. all depends how strong the, the different rulers are. The Jews, as I told you, have a good position in imperial law. They have the right to religious and economic freedom and security. But the local priests, as I told you last time, cannot abide this. And they influence the masses or they poison the masses. So the Jews, and this is the problem in Europe today, make it their business to be tight with the guys at the top. But that's important, no question. But the guys at the bottom are the ones there on the street. And the guys at the street level, the ones who's the priest in the local church and the local parish, is not interested in the fact that the archbishop and the popes and all those guys are tight with the Jews because of business reasons. And they are you know, moved by their own Christian passion and they want to communicate this at the local sermon in the local church. And the result is a toxic environment. And anyway, everybody wants to harm the Jews because everybody owes them money. So if you kill them, you don't owe them any money. That's, that's, that's an unfortunate economic reality of the Middle Ages. You know, we will, we will come back to that. You get it? When the Jews are in the business of financing, lending, investing, it's a fact if you kill them all, you don't owe them any money. It's, it's hard to take away that temptation. Now, in Norwich and Blois that we talked about last week, the Jews were accused of killing a Christian child. But if you pay close attention, there was no mention of the matzah, meaning there was no blood libel in the classic sense that we described as it's going to emerge, that the Jews as part of a religious ritual, um, shechta a Christian kid, or better yet, crucify him and pierce him and squeeze out the blood and they use it in baking of matzahs and other ritual acts. They, as we saw, they had some kind of a proto-version of the protocols, the elders of Zion, if those of you were here for our first talk, and you know something about sacrificing a child or whatever, but it didn't exactly develop in the way that we, that we think of it because since it's a made-up item, 
it's got to evolve sort of organically within the European Christian culture uh, in 1235. 1235, in Fulda, such charges are, are leveled, or at least that the Jews murder kids because they need their blood for some religious uh, reason. Fulda is a town smack in the middle in the belly button of Germany, right? There's Germany today. So you see where it is. It's a small town, and the Jews lived in those years primarily in south and central Germany, which was a economically good area, but uh, the environment very tough, very hostile towards uh, Jews. And uh, to give you the basic details, according to the Dominican analyst at Erfurt, uh, Jews of Fulda were accused of killing a bunch of boys. What happened specifically was as follows, that uh, there were a number of, of uh, mills, you know, where you grind uh, wheat. There were, number, uh, uh, there were several mills, and on Christmas Day of 1235, the miller of one of the mills and his wife went to church in town. When they were gone, the mill burned down, and the bodies of their five sons were found in the ruins. So it was a tragedy. The family went to church, the parents, and, and there was a fire in the house, and everybody got killed. It was a sad day for the miller and his wife, but it was a much sadder day for the 34 Jews who lived there and for millions of Jews thereafter. According to the famous account, now this is a Christian account, the Jews of Fulda were accused of killing the boys. That's weird. It was a fire. <laughs> right? I mean, you, you, know, you saw the, the charred bodies. They confessed that two of them had killed the boys and drawn off their blood into waxed bags. And on the 28th of December, that's three days after Christmas, 34 Jews were cruelly killed. According to the Erfurt analyst, that's the Christian chronicler, they were killed by crusaders, but someone else says they were killed by the citizens of Fulda. Now this gives you an idea of the irrational nature of this kind of act, but that doesn't matter for the victims. It's pretty clear what happened over here. It's not a ritual act. The kids didn't disappear, and, you know, all of a sudden found drained of blood, like in some Dracula movie or something like that. It was a fire, and it's a tragedy, no question about it. Now how did it move from A to B to C to D, that when you see, uh, you know, a fire happen, that you end up calling it a, well, that's what you call word of mouth, isn't it? You say, one says, I, they burned the fire. The other one says, well, I know they burned the fire. I heard it was all the different. And then it comes to the telephone. And the next one, it says it this way. The next one says that way. And ordinarily, we would sort of laugh and talk about the folly of rumors and things like that. There's nothing funny about folly and rumors in the Middle Ages for Jews. That's the problem. It's, it's not funny. Because by the time the, the story gets legs and picks up steam, it's, oh, the Jews uh, killed the kids and then threw them into the house and burned it down to make it look like a fire. So that's probably how it worked out. They said, how did a whole family get killed in a fire? The answer is, they didn't all get killed in a fire. They were killed somewhere else. They thrown and then the house was deliberately burned down to cover the whole thing up. Now, uh, we weren't there. We didn't know what kind of a trial, if you want to call it those words, happened. But we know that this is this what happens over here. Um, and it gives no... Notice the story. It says they took the, 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 the uh, blood and put them into bags. Um, it doesn't say exactly why they wanted the blood, but another analyst says later on that they did it at summum remedium, which in Latin means that you know, they went for some kind of medicinal or perhaps religious medicinal reason. Okay? Now, the thing is that this was a big shock. Because it never happened in Germany before. Isn't that interesting what I'm telling you? Here you are in the year 1235, and throughout the Middle Ages beforehand, Germany was not a place that they loved Jews, but there was never any kind of blood libel. And it was never any kind of situation that we know about in which some Christian kids were killed, one or two or three or more, and the Jews were blamed. Why would the Jews do it? You see? And then all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, this very weird and unbelievable story happened. Because I just described to you, it was a fire. And so, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not like, you know, someone was found somewhere, uh, you know, with his head chopped off, and then they say, oh, the Jews did it, or something like that. It's a, it was extremely implausible, but none of that matters. And the local priests, obviously, you know, helped create this kind of uh, narrative. And unfortunately, as you and I know today, I mean today, right now, we're giving this talk in the middle of the war that Israel's fighting with the Palestinians and the Gaza Strip, he who puts the spin on the story wins the, wins the, the PR prize, correct? Wins the PR war. It, it's all how you spin it. And this is a story of spin. 
And the Arabs, if they could, would spin it in such a way to kill us now. We, uh, what, what else is new? But this is happening in a very specific, and in this case a Christian way, in the 13th century, in the year 1235. Now here, something very unusual happens. This could have really mushroomed into a frenzy that could have swept all throughout Germany and Europe and killed everybody. It was that close. And the Jews are defenseless against this because all you can say is, I didn't do it. And, you know, that's never, that's never an argument. So certainly when you have an angry uh, crowd. But the cast of characters is all important over here. Let me just read you a piece over here where, where the chronicler, the German chronicler says, in order to incite the emperor against the crime, right, they said, we want to make this national news. And we want the Kaiser, the Holy Roman Emperor, to find out about it and kill all the Jews. The boys' bodies were brought to Fulda to the Great Imperial from Fulda to the Great Imperial Castle at Hagenau, 150 miles away. So they tied, wrapped up the bodies and, uh, and slept 150 miles. Think about what that means in December in Germany. And there the bodies were brought to Hagenau. It's supported by the later account, and uh, so on and so forth. And the emperor wasn't there at that time. But they said he's going to wait till they till they bring him back. Well, fortunate, fortunately for the Jews, the emperor at that particular moment was perhaps the most remarkable of all the Holy Roman emperors, Frederick II, uh, who is a parsha b'fnei hatzmo. The Frederick II, the Holy Roman emperor, is a very well-known figure, perhaps the most uh, uh, controversial and famous, very interesting figure in the Middle Ages, because. Uh, he was emperor for a long time, from the time he was a baby, like, you know, from one years old, two years old. I mean that because of his father and all this. And he constantly battled the popes. He captured Jerusalem from the Muslims for a while. He had wars galore. But he also was an enormous uh, patron of the arts. And here you had a very rare case where he was a brilliant intellectual. Usually German princes are not intellectuals. They, uh, because the talents it takes for one don't necessarily match the other. In his particular case, he had a guy who spoke like eight languages, was familiar with all kinds of different traditions and cultures, extremely unusual in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. And because from the early age on, he had to deal with politics with the popes and the Vatican, and they're always trying to shaft him, and he's trying to shaft them, he developed early on a, a big skepticism. And so, let's put it this way, he was definitely the most radical skeptic in the Middle Ages, and he wrote a book, Incognito, the title called uh, The Three Great Impostors. Uh, the Three Great Impostors. Moses, Jesus, Muhammad. Okay? <laughs> now, he couldn't sign his name, but everybody knew he wrote it, and what does, it, what does that tell you? He said, don't give me this bit about the Pope, and all, all religion is a crock, right? It's all there out to, to manipulate the masses and all the rest of it. And only somebody with a very wide education in the 13th century would have that perspective. Okay? And so he'll go along with all the Catholic stuff because he's the emperor, but you're not fooling anybody, so to speak. And uh, he liked educated people from all backgrounds. And, and he creates an imperial court in Sicily. That's where he likes to hang out. If you go to Sicily, they have these famous palaces where he created a very cosmopolitan a court unique in the Middle Ages in which he had all kinds of scholars from all over the place, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. This is just not done. And uh, philosophers, astronomers, uh, poets, uh, writers, uh, which I say scientists, whatever that meant in the 13th century, including, by the way, a very famous rabbi, uh, maybe he's not so famous to you, Yaakov Anatoly, the Malmed HaTalmidim, uh, wrote a very famous commentary, philosophical commentary on, on, the, uh, on the Bible. Uh, Yaakov Anatoly is an extreme Maimonidean, that was a left-wing extreme left-wing orthodox that we would say today. And, uh, and, and everything in the Bible is a, uh, it's not literal. You get it? Now this, this, when it says this and this over here, it's a muscle that, that bears this philosophical message. And uh, the orthodox didn't like him too much. Okay? Uh, but he's absolutely typical of the court of Frederick II. You get it? Because... A guy like Frederick II, you're talking about Jesus and all this. Well, you really think it was a guy like that. You know, come on, it's just a way of talking for the roots. What really happened was such and such and so on and so. So the Malmada Talmud is very much a reflection of that unique piece of culture at that time. Uh, when the highly educated and highly cultured Frederick... So you understand what I'm trying to get across? 
you have a mass of Germans who are asses, right? The masses are asses. They don't know anything. They're, they're, they're ignorant. They're peasants. They believe whatever they take in the church, and they take it all literally. And, and, and they certainly, as Catholics, believe that this is the body and the blood of Christ. And the whole nine yards. And uh, plus witches and demons and so forth. And here comes the emperor, who says, I guess, I'm looking at the biggest bunch of rooms that ever walked down the road, you know? Uh, when the highly educated culture of Frederick hears that the Jews in Fulda have been killed and others are being brought up on charges because they want to use Christian blood in Jewish ceremonies, he basically says, say, what now? <laughs> you know, well, what, what's this? Okay. Now, I know what Judaism is. I don't know the Talmud. I know what Judaism is. I know what Islam is too. I told you, he was unusually educated. Determined to get to the bottom of this rumor, both out of his own curiosity, as well as out of a desire to avoid an imperial Kristallnacht. Right? He doesn't want a bunch of rice sweeping all across Germany. Frederick writes to the monarchs of Europe and to the Pope. And he says, we have letters from Henry of England, for example. Have you ever heard about the Jews? I mean, uh, wanting to use... Love for the says, look, I know the Jews are stupid in this way, and they dress funny, and they got all these crazy customs. No question about it. Listen, we're, we're, we're as weird as they come, you know. But on the other hand, you ever heard about this? They use the blood for matzah? But, you know, what is it? And the kings of England and France and other countries, they're like this. Same thing. He said, no, I never heard of that one. Again, I mean, the Jews are low-life. They're scuzzballs, you know, they're so on and so forth. You know, who wants to be a Jew? And, and so, but I never heard of that. I never heard of that one. He writes to the Pope, I never heard of that one. And so he says, I'm going to nip this one in the bud. Simply because it uh, is part of his nature to, you know, uh, what shall I say, fight against dangerous superstitions when the opportunity presents itself. And so what he does is he gathers an int- very quickly, by the way, in the, in the course of a few months, um, he gathers an international convention of Mishamadim. <laughs> he summons Jews who converted to Catholic from all over the place, from Germany, from France, and other places, to a castle. And these are people who have left the Jewish religion. These are people who spit on the Jewish religion. These are people who moved away from Judaism to embrace Catholicism in the Middle Ages. What do they think of Jews? And by the way, a lot of people, why would a Jew typically, typically convert to Catholicism in the Middle Ages? Consider what I'm about to tell you. Uh, a Jew brought up in a Jewish tradition is now going to embrace a religion in which you would, you would eat, eat the body and the blood of the Savior? It's, 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 it's very paganistic. It's very strange to a Jewish sensibility. We're not talking about converting to Unitarianism or something like that, right? We're talking about to medieval Catholicism. So why would a Jew do that? First of all, there's always romance. Right? That, that works. Boy meets girl. No, I'm serious. You know, that, that'll always be, always was, always will be. Uh, the Jewish books are full of such stories. And um, that could happen. A lot of times, the Jewish guy's in bad uh, trouble with the Jewish community. He's caught stealing. He's caught committing a crime. The Jewish community's going to go after him. They're going to whip him. They're going to jail him. You can always get out of it by converting. You know what I'm saying? If I'm a Jew in the 1200s, even if I murder another Jew, so murder is a crime in Germany. If I murder another Jew, if I run to the Christian court and they say like this, he says, I'm willing to convert, and so I'm newborn, so I'm not the guy that did it. That was a bad old me when I was a Jew, but now I'm somebody new. You, you, you will be exonerated, plus you also get a couple hundred bucks. So, no, I mean, this, is, this really is the reality. Listen, there's a whole Jewish, what should I say? We Jews have no choice but to try to turn the sad circumstances of our, of our lives over centuries into humor. Right? What, what, what choice do we have? So there's a classic story from the old country, Eastern Europe, in which a guy, uh, how's it work now? He said the guy was, needed money, and so he went to the church, and they gave, you know, he converted him 50 bucks. And then a week later, he went to another area, and he converted him another 50 bucks, and so forth and so on. Finally, they got wise, and they put out a circular, don't take this guy in. Next church he went to, they said, no, no deal. He said, oh, a bunch of submitting them. You know, <laughs> you know the Jews turned this into, a, 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 into what it is. Now, these are people who do not feel good about Judaism. But the emperor, Frederick, calls them in. He said like this, 
I know you don't like Judaism. I don't like Judaism. It's stupid, this, that, and the other. Do they, but here's the question. Do they use Christian blood in Jewish rituals? Is it part of the Jewish religion, a secret part to kill Christians and use the blood? And they all said, no. He said, we, don't, we think Judaism is bad in this way and it's bad in that way and we've rejected it by our own life story and all the rest of it, but they don't do that. You see? And then Frederick basically said, I guess, in case closed, it's what I thought. It's some local guy, for local reasons, took advantage of a fire of five kids to go blame the local Jews and maybe he owed them money. Maybe he was angry at them for some other reason. Maybe the, Christian, maybe the Jew was stupid and made fun of him sometime or other. It's a local reason, but it's not a religious and theological one. And as a result, he um, issues an imperial law prohibiting making such charges. Interesting, right? He said, no, it becomes a crime to issue such charges because it's, it's so potentially de- deadly. It works. It's a bomb. It's equivalent to, to, to shouting a fire in a theater. You understand? If you stand up in a town in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, and say, the Jews killed a Christian kid, it's going to be a pogrom. And something that's that lethal, and uh, with such potential of violence, he said, I won't have it. And so he issues, as I say before, an imperial uh, decree doing so, and he officially legislates, it's a famous point in Jewish history, 1235, that the Jews are the, are the personal property of the Treasury Department of the Emperor. You see? They belong to the Treasury Department. They're serving the Nostri Kamri. They're servants of our chamber, which, which, which in, in effect means the Treasury Department. If you know your American history, you know that uh, we've had colonies in the past, right? And the, I remember the Navy Department owned Puerto Rico once upon a time. The Army owned uh, Hawaii, if you remember that, if you go back that far. I forget who owned Alaska. They formed it out to the departments. And the Treasury Department owns some Karka as well, and uh, thinks it is nature. And in the way they set up at that time was this belongs to the... So you can't touch a Jew because it's government property. That's the point. Now, Halavida, this should have worked. It didn't work. But at least he did something. Did it help? Within a decade, the Jews in Valreas are accused by two monks of crucifying a child and taking his blood for religious purposes. Valrias, as you see, is down here in, in South France, not far from the border of, of the Holy Roman Empire. And it's not exactly in the empire, it's right near the border. And uh, the two monks basically have the attitude, well, are they really going to punish me for killing Jews? See, this is the problem. Are they really going to punish me for making a pogrom? Um, if three people attack a shoal, they better get arrested. If 30,000 people attack a shoulder, who can you arrest? You, see, you, you, you will get away with it. And so they are accused, they, um, let's put it this way, the Jews are accused of crucifying a child, taking his blood for religious purposes. A bunch of Jews are arrested, tried, and killed. The other Jews, who were, we don't know exactly why, not seized yet, they immediately run to get word to the Pope. Innocent the fourth who fortuitously was nearby in France, forced out of Italy by Frederick II. <laughs> so here's Pope Innocent, who's actually a pretty well-known person in Jewish history. Talked about him a couple years ago. And let's go to the next map. Is that, do we have the map there? No, it's, it's one before. Let's pre- precede it. Go back to the Pope. Um, the, the Villarreal is in South France. The Pope was in Lyon. Lyon is like 95 miles away. And so it was, uh, usually the Pope's in Rome. But as I told you before, if you know your Middle Ages well, there were a lot of fights between the Pope and the Emperor. And at many times, the uh, Emperors beat up the Popes. And in the case of Frederick II, if you want to know about the fights that he had with the Pope, Innocent IV, he made it so hot in Italy that the Pope couldn't be in Italy, and he ran away to the south of France. Some of you perhaps have been tourists, and you visit Avignon and places like that in southern France, which was once upon a time a papal territory. And to make a long story short, the Pope was not far away. Now, this particular pope was not so bad. That's why I say he's a famous person in Jewish history, although I don't expect people here to remember the different medieval popes. Um, And they said they're accusing us of killing children to use their blood for religious purposes. The Pope Innocent uh, IV issued a remarkable bull, a a, a papal uh, statement, a psakaloch, as we would say today, trying to drive a stake through the heart of the blood libel. It's, it's quite interesting. Take a look at the language. I only have it over here. 
uh, I can't see it so well over here, but if you look at the language, he says, we've heard the uh, tearful plea of the Jews of Germany, and he goes on to say, if you take a, if, if you take a trouble to read the words, that this is uh, a cockable story. It's all made up. And that the Jews are being made to suffer worse than, in, in Germany than, they, than the Jews in the Bible did under Pharaoh. That's, that's what he says over here. Okay? And that this is the result of Greece, uh, a green and avarice on the part of the local Germans. And those, I know what's going on. And he's a Pope, so he's not pro-Jewish. Okay? But on the other hand, he is maintaining the Vatican tradition, the St. Augustine tradition. And that is that the Jews perhaps should not thrive, but they should survive. And therefore, uh, to kill them on false charges, simply because you don't like the local Jews, is contrary to the teachings of the church. If you told me that you were going to put economic disabilities upon them, prevent them from going to different trades or whatever, no, that's something that's you know, up to the local princes. Right? If you want to tell me you want to prohibit the Jews from charging interest, it doesn't matter local conditions. But if you talk about killing people, and killing people on a charge that's just not true, and he goes on to read over there, as I said, I can't see it from over here. Read, he says, the, Jewish, the Jews in their own religion avoid blood. He says, I know this. Uh, it, it, it's not part of their culture. And you and I know that we salt meat and things like this to get, get rid of the blood. And so to make this kind of a charge is just wrong. Now, this is pretty impressive coming from the Pope. No? Coming from the Pope. It's a really mazel for these Jews, few survivors in that little town in southern France, that the Pope literally happened to be nearby. If he, if he was in Italy and Rome, they'd be toast. Because they never get, never, never get to him. And so, we end up within a very short time, in the 1200s, of getting something very significant. The Holy Roman Emperor, the highest Christian ruler in Europe, and the Pope, who was the supreme authority in the Catholic Church, both came out officially, officially, saying the blood libel is a lie. And as the Gemara puts it, If not for these official and very important statements, all the Jews would have, would have been killed long, long ago. It didn't stop the popping up of blood libels here and there and there and there over the next couple hundred years, but it did prevent a general massacre of the Jews to which they would have been exposed because the Christians wouldn't listen and it would sweep from one priest to the next priest and it would be all over. So it's, it's kind of interesting that with the very rise for the first time ever officially of charges that the Jews are taking blood and using their ceremonies, you get a refutation and a public official denial by the highest Christians, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, saying that whoever says these charges are lies. Notice, they didn't say these particular Jews didn't do it. Maybe others did it. They say we know enough about Judaism to know that the Jews have a lot of bad habits and they have a lot of bad beliefs and obviously they kill Jesus and they don't believe in Christianity and all the rest. All that's bad and they're all going straight to hell and so on and so forth. But they don't do this. And anybody who says they do this is telling a lie and therefore doing it for malicious reasons and I know why you're doing it. You're doing it for the money or you're doing it for some other local reason. Now, um, as I said, I wish this would have had the effect of driving a stake through the heart of this whole charge. Uh, but it didn't. Now, you'll ask me a question, why? If everybody's so from, if they're such big Catholics, the Pope gave a pronunciation, a pronouncement. Uh, that should end the story. Not really. Because at the local level, at the local parish priest, this statement by the Pope was so, what's the right word, counterintuitive. It was so anomalous. It's so much the opposite of what they expected to hear. They were absolutely sure the Pope was saying, go for it, baby, we found that the Jews are doing this, and wipe them out. That they couldn't handle it. They couldn't absorb it. And they could only come to the conclusion, Nebuch, the world's in bad shape, the Jews have bought off the Pope. You understand? That's the only reason, yeah? They bought them off. You get it? Now, you'll ask me a question. You ask me a question, how can you respect somebody that was bought off by the Jews? The Godolim are not perfect. What can I tell you? you know? <laughs> it's like that, 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 that's, that's the attitude that they is. It's even the Pope or the Nebuch, you know, whatever. But we know better. And he was 
uh, brought, uh, you, you might say, I guess, the Jews forced him against his will or they overwhelmed him with pressure. Uh, but really, 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 he wants us to kill the Jews in this particular neighborhood or, or this particular village. And how do you fight against it? You understand? In 1255, so I went to 1235, 1236, now 1255, also in the middle of the 1200s, another charge popped up in England. Right, so we saw the first business started with William of Norwich in the 1100s, now you have the 1200s. Uh, in England, it's a sad story. England was, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you, England was the number one anti-Semitic country in Europe in the Middle Ages. Isn't that interesting? You don't, you don't think of it that way. Because the English later changed and became much more liberal. But in the time of Richard the Lionheart and all that, Henry II, King John, uh, you know, the people that you perhaps have heard about or seen in, in, in novels and in movies, at that time, the feeling of the Hamon Hump, of the masses of people, was extremely anti-Semitic, much more than in Spain, even much more than in France, where it was bad news in France, and much more than in Germany. Germany was more liberal than France and, and England. Con consider that. And this is reflected in the fate of the Jews in England because, as I mentioned the other day, the Jews first came to England with, with William the Conqueror in 1066, uh, being of service to the Normans, the rulers. Uh, over the course of the 1100s, the intelligent rulers of the country protected Jews because, like I said, they were a cash cow. Uh, the classic example being Henry II, uh, who nevertheless made it his business, he took care of the Jew. But any time a Jewish millionaire died, he took all the money. Well, listen, you got to pay soldiers on payday. You understand? You got to pay for your castles. Um, by the time you get to the 1200s, England doesn't have powerful and strong rulers anymore who feel this way. They have weak rulers, especially Henry III, and uh, what is it, Richard I? Richard II? That doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that the mass tendencies of extreme hatred of the Jews manifest themselves in waves. It's like really hard to be Jewish in England. And the government starts a policy like they did in France of ripping off the Jews. Then they put one tax on them and they do another and the government, you know, they can, they can get you this way and they get you that way and they impoverish the Jews of England until you get to the late 1200s when, when, when the Jews are all broke and then they kick them out right? under Edward Longshank, Edward I. And so if you're talking about the middle of the 1200s there are Jews in England, but they're in bad way, bad shape. Uh, better move to Spain. Better move to Germany. And in 1255, another charge popped up in England. You uh, of Lincoln. Lincoln was once upon a time a... Uh, it was Aaron of Lincoln. It was a, what can I say? A well-known Jewish community. When I, what does it mean, a well-known Jewish community? Probably a 20, 30 families, which, which, which once in those days was a, was a big Jewish com community. Um... I'll just read the official account. The nine-year-old you, you know, H-U-G-H, uh, disappeared on the 31st July of 1255, and his body was discovered in a well uh, a month later, the end of August. A man named John of Lexington appears to have suggested that the Jews were responsible. Why not? You's friends apparently claimed that Coppin, a local Jew, had imprisoned you, tortured him, and crucified him. And that the body had been thrown into the well because attempts to bury the child had failed when the earth expelled it. See? Coppin then was arrested, the Jewish guy, and admitted to killing the child under torture. Are you aware that torture was part of the judicial process of every uh, legal system in Europe and elsewhere, but especially in Europe, <clears throat> until the 1700s? Yeah, to the 1700s. And uh, uh, in England, they even used it for political cases. In Henry VIII's time, they used it a lot. And the idea was, I'll tell you where it comes from. A, a court has to issue, you know, verdicts. And sometimes it's a harsh verdict. And let's say, for example, the court says that this guy should be killed. You're going to get all the relatives angry at you. And they're going to say, he didn't do it. And that the court is therefore uh, judicial murderers. And they might go after the judges. And so there was a, a huge desire, atavistically, on the part of the judiciary to say like this. He admitted that he did it. We stood up in the court. Of course, he chopped off three hands and you, you know, burned them alive and all the rest of it. But he said he did it. 
And that way, when he went to be executed, beheaded or drawn in court or whatever it was, before that happened, he would say, I did it. And as far as the crowd is concerned, he said he did it. Now, what about the fact that you forced him into it by the torture? That wasn't as important to them as the fact that the guy confessed and said he did it. When you have a rare case where someone is executed and says, I didn't do it, left a very bad taste on the part of the crowds. If you know the history of the Salem witchcraft trials in, in New England, they eventually had to stop burning the witches in Salem up in Massachusetts. Why? Because every time they burned them, they said, we didn't do it. And even though the courts had the power, the people couldn't stop them, but pretty soon, the public sentiment was so persuaded that they were committing judicial murders and accusing people of witchcraft they didn't do it. You couldn't do it anymore. So I'm just trying to show you, judges don't live in, a, in, in an ivory tower or, or in a castle somewhere. They live in the community. They've got to feel this way. The Jewish law was the only system in the Middle Ages, that, the only system in the Middle Ages, that disallowed torture. You're not allowed to use torture in Jewish uh, thing, or maybe I, I should say better. Uh, they didn't use torture, but for a technical reason, not because we're so soft-hearted, but because of the very interesting law in the Talmud that a confession is not admissible in court. And many people don't know that. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? You cannot get a conviction in Jewish under Talmudic law. You can't get a conviction based on a on a confession. To use technical language, you have to have two adim, you have two witnesses. And if you can't do it, ain't on a mason masa Russia, as we call it. And because of that, the Jewish law system never developed a system of, of, of you know, physically pressuring the, uh, the uh, you know, defendants and all the rest of it, which is why in some areas, even Christians prefer to go to a Jewish court. You see? But on the other hand, you always had the option of going to the Christian court. So here's this guy, Koppen or Joppen, whatever his name was, in uh, Lincoln in 1255, and they say, you did it. Once you're charged, you're going to confess. You'll confess. And so he later appears to have implicated the Jewish community as a whole. In other words, under torture, he said like this, did you crucify the child? Yes. Do you have accomplices? What do you want me to say? The whole Jewish community. The whole Jewish community did it. Well, it hurts. You know, they're, they're, they're torturing him. He was executed, and the story would have ended there if not for a series of events that coincided with the disappearance. Six months earlier, the King of England, Henry III, had sold his rights to tax the Jews to his brother, Richard Earl of Cornwall. This is a very medieval concept. The king owns the Jews, I told you. King John of England, back in the Robin Hood time, King John of England famously said, no one should lay his hand on my Jew or my dog. Because it belongs to me. And in that kind of world, the Jew was glad to hear that. That's how low the position of the Jew was at some times in the Middle Ages. And uh, the king of England owned the Jews in the sense that the tax money doesn't go local, it goes straight to the king. But that's a concession. You can franchise anything out. And so he sold the right to tax the Jews to his brother, Richard Earl of Cornwall. Having lost his source of income, he decided he was eligible for the Jews' money if they were convicted of crimes. You get what I'm saying? Notice there was brothers, two brothers ripping each other off. I sold you, I'm the king of England, I sold you the right to tax the Jews. But then I can't make any money out of the Jews. But if they're convicted of a crime, then the money goes to the king. <laughs> you get it? In other words, it's a shameless injustice that we're talking about over here. As a result, 90 Jews were arrested and held in the Tower of London, where they were charged with involvement in ritual murder. Because if he gets to kill them for committing the crime, he gets their money, even though he sold the brother the right to tax them. Such accusations have become increasingly common because, as I told you last time, when William of Norwich disappeared, although nothing happened to the Jews at that time, that priest, Thomas Amonis, wrote a whole book saying the Jews got him, and that book had a lot of traction. It was fascinating to read. There weren't too many books in the Middle Ages. And really, you know, changed public opinion it became an article of faith that it's true and that William of North was crucified by Jews in 1144 and obviously this influenced the myth around them. 18 Jews were hanged for refusing to participate in proceedings and throw themselves on the mercy of a Christian jury. <laughs> uh, you get what I'm saying? You, you didn't confess and do the right thing so you get hanged. Okay? Uh, it was the first time ever that the civil government handed out a death sentence for ritual murder 
And then King Henry was able to take all their property. Very nice. Uh, the remainder were pardoned and set free. Mostly because Richard said, hey, you're, you sold me their taxes. In other words, justice, right and wrong, had nothing to do with any of this. And we're not dealing with local duke, count, prince, where you can understand that there's going to be a lot of corruption. The king is always supposed to be above that. The emperor is supposed to, they only steal big money, you know. They, they, don't, they don't do these petty, wrong. Wrong. If the situation is right, you can always get them on this. And if the Jews, and you know this, are not going to be convicted for regular crimes, the Jews don't beat up people, they don't go around murdering, they do, it's, not they, it's not a Jewish thing, you can always get them on the ritual murder. And if you tell me no one witnessed it because it didn't happen, no, you have no witnesses, we get a confession. How to get a confession? You always get a confession. And that, my friends, is how things worked in the uh, Middle Ages. The chronicler Matthew of Paris described the supposed murder implicating all the Jews in England. Listen to how somebody wrote it at that time. This year, 1255, around the feast of the apostles Peter and Paul, meeting on the 27th of July, the Jews of Lincoln stole a boy named Hugh, who was about eight years old, after shutting him up in a secret chamber where they fed him milk and other kitty foods. They sent him to almost all the cities of England where there were Jews, and so, right, meaning they send down a message that all the Jews of England should get together and summon all their, from their sex from each city to be present at the carbon, at the sacrifice that's going to take place in Lincoln in contumely an insult of Jesus Christ, for they said they had a boy concealed for the purpose of being crucified, so the great number of them assembled at Lincoln. So in other words, according to the story, all the protocols, elders, all the Jews of England, or most of them, come to have the festival at Lincoln. And there they appointed Jew of Lincoln, judge, to take the place of Pontius Pilate. So no, they're going to reenact the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what gives it, the, the, it makes it sexy in the, in the Christian court. That's why they, when they hear this, they say, oh, the Jews did it. By whose sentence, with the concurrence of all, the boy was subjected to various tortures. Because in the New Testament, they tortured Jesus before they killed him. They scourged him until the blood flowed. They crowned him with thorns, the boy. They mocked him and spat upon him. Each of them pierced him with a knife. And then they made him drink gall and scoffed him with blasphemous insults and kept gnashing their teeth and calling him Jesus' false prophet. After tormenting him in many ways, they crucified him and pierced his heart with a spear. When he was dead, they took their body down from the cross and for some reason disemboweled it for the purpose of their magic arts. You think of a jury hearing this in 1255 in England. <laughs> Kill them all. Right? Kill them all. And especially if they got a guy who confessed to what I just described. It's, it's a, a chamber of horrors. I mean, it's, 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 it's unbelievably evil, these Jews. Thanks, unfortunately, to Chaucer, uh, the story of Hume Lincoln went viral in English literature in the Prior's Tale. Anybody? I assume everybody. But anybody have to learn Canterbury Tales? And did you... Uh, <laughs> were you in a Jewish school when you had to learn Canterbury Tales? Or were you in a non-Jewish school? We had to go there. If you were in a non-Jewish school and you had their Canterbury Tales, wasn't so comfortable, right? Because one of the, you know, Geoffrey Chaucer in the 1300s writes this famous immortal classic of English literature where a bunch of people are on their way to pilgrimage and they're all schmoozing, right? And each one tells a tale. And one of them is the prioress. I mean, she's like a, the, you know, the head of a bunch of nuns. And when she's on the way, well, they're on the way to the cathedral to, to, to see the, uh, the, the Saint Becket, you understand? Uh, you know, who was killed by Henry II. And on the way there, she says, I'll tell you a tale. And it's a tale of a boy, which is not you of Lincoln, but she said, it reminds me exactly of you of Lincoln. There was a boy in Asia Minor, and he was a nice little Christian boy, and then the Jew, he wandered around there, but the Jews got a hold of him and tortured him and this and that and the other. And uh, many Jewish uh, boys and girls, I think there might be people in this audience and others, have been in college or once upon a time in high school, and they used to read all this sort of thing, and, you know, all the Christian kids in class are looking at them, and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, I can tell you right now, when this is read, even today, and certainly in the last 20th century, the kids say like this, well, we know it's not all true. The teacher always says, it's not all true. <laughs> so, so how much is true? 10%? 20%? When you don't know, the average person says like this, they say, well, I don't know if it's all a lie, you know, it's a, you know. If I say you did something and so on and so forth, yeah. if I walked over to anybody over here and I said, this person did so-and-so to me or to you or whatever, even if it was pretty outrageous, you'd say, 
don't know if I totally believe it, but I somewhat believe it. Or didn't the Chavetz Chaim write a book called Hilchus Lashon Hara about that? Right? You know, he, they say in the book, somebody says Lashon Hara, you're supposed to totally disbelieve it. Yeah, right. It's, a, it's like when the judge says, the jury will... Uh, we all know how that works, yeah. No, no, but, but now that's all funny. This was, of course, not funny. And the cultural results in English culture, no, it's British culture, and American culture, English speaking culture, has remained with us because the Priorist tale of, of Chaucer and others has, is, is, is a, 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 what should I say, immortal classic of literature, and it is. And it is. And it always carries the poison because what we really should be saying is. What kind of idiots were these people in England in the 14th century that they're appealing to Babamises, which even the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope says was a Babamisa? Nishki Stoigen and Nishki never happened. And these idiots are talking about it like, look how credulous they were. No, you don't say it that way. Because you don't want to, what should I say? You don't want to insult Chaucer. You're too much of an angry Jew. <laughs> you know, too much of that Semitic uh, bile. It's a problem. Now, Obviously, England has changed, of course. Uh, although it didn't change, uh, the major reason it changed, it went Protestant, to be perfectly honest. And the major reason the, the Protestants did was the, not the Church of England, the uh, dissenters, you know, the Oliver Cromwell types. They're the ones who busted all this stuff up. So just you should know, it's, it doesn't help, but it's, it's nice to know that in 1955, um, the Anglican Church uh, put up a, sign, which you can see here, I think. Is that the next one? Yeah. And you can read the sign where it says, um, on, on little used former shrine at Lincoln Cathedral. So this is a place where Englishmen have gone on pilgrimage for centuries. But 1955 is a decade after the Holocaust. And I would even go so far as to say the 50s was the best years in England as far as the Jews are concerned. You understand? That was the maximum non-anti-Semitism. If you uh, want to get down closer, we'll talk about that later this here. And what does he say over there? By the remains of the shrine of Little U, trumped up stories of ritual murders of Christian boys by Jewish communities were common throughout Europe in the Middle Ages and even later. These fictions cost many innocent Jews their lives. Lincoln had his own legend. The alleged victim was buried in the cathedral. Such stories do not redound to the credit of Christendom. And so, Lord, forget us what we've been, amen what we are, and direct what we shall be. Uh, at least, it's, it's good that somebody should go on the record and say, that the whole thing's a lie, right? It doesn't bring anybody back, but it's at least good that they should come out and say this. But uh, the sad fact is, I don't know the uh, demography of England at this moment. If there's a bunch of Muslims living in Lincoln, they probably took down the sign and put up and said, it really happened. Because, you know, that's what's going on. The demonization of Jews associated with the blood libel charges became a staple of European culture and is currently being revived, as I said before. Uh, thus, from the mid-1200s on, Every time a Christian kid was missing, the Jews were in danger of being accused of kidnapping for the monsters. This simply became part of Jewish life in Europe from the 1200s till Hitler's time. You get it? Uh, if a kid was missing and there are Jews in the community, you know, you give it a day, you know, maybe a little bit more, and then where is he? Where is she? And who saw what the Jews were doing? And if it happened around Pesach, if it happened in April time, forget about it. The Jews are doomed, whatever the Pope says. Which is why you have this terror of using red wine in the Seder. That's where it comes from. The Shulchan Aruch says, the Gemara says, that the best wine is the red wine, it's more kosher for and the Seder, you're supposed to be like three people, but the Shulchan Aruch says, do not use red wine. Don't, don't do it. And I remember I was a kid, and I made some kind of, as kids do, I told my father, he came from Eastern Europe, from Lithuania, I said some joke about, oh, it looks like blood. He said, that's not even funny. It's not, it's, not a, it's not even funny. Just like you don't make jokes about Auschwitz, it's not funny. You don't make jokes about this business because people got killed over this and in, in terrible ways. So it is not funny. And, um, and it became part, therefore, of, of Jewish life. Again, there's a classic Jewish gallows humor type joke about this, which will, will speak better than anything I can say. And maybe you've heard it, and it goes like this. A, kid, a girl is missing. The Jewish community freaks out. They're davening and shul. They're praying. They're all going to be doomed. And the guy runs and says, Baruch Hashem, the, the missing child was Jewish. It's funny, it's not funny. But you understand what I'm saying? That's a Jewish humor attempting to try to deal with it. 
You understand? And, 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 and this was really true. If you think this stuff is wild, the, in 1924, in the state of New York, in Osceola, uh, a Christian kid was missing with Ervium Kipper, and the police chief and uh, somebody else, mayor or somebody, the police chief and the mayor, went to the, uh, the rabbi, the reform rabbi of a small synagogue in Osceola. He says, what can you tell us about this? He says, what are you talking and uh, being there was 1924, so, you know, got in the papers and the guy had to apologize and so on and so forth. But it goes to show you in upstate New York, which is not a backwards place too much, and, you know, people have a... <laughs> Thank you, voice of Brooklyn. <laughs> Manhattan has now spoken. The, uh, the, uh, yeah, but after all the jokes are over, there's public school. They're reading where people are literate. I'm reading where people are literate. You know, it's, it's a civilized place. It is. I, I understand all the jokes, but, when, but in reality, it, 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 it's, it's not the end of the world or something like that. And, uh, boy, you are real sophisticates over here, I'm telling you. I'm dealing with cosmopolitans. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> people, they, the, the, the point is, obviously, they picked it up with their mother's milk. Where'd they hear it? How'd they hear it? Where'd it come from? And you find phenomena like this elsewhere. Um, what if no child is missing, though? And you want to kill the Jews because you owe money or whatever. But what's the charge? There's no missing baby. In an atmosphere of demonization, you can't just leave the Jews alone. So what do you do? But what's the charge? Nobody's missing. The answer is the second of the two terrors and scourges that pop up in the Middle Ages. That is what they call the host desecration. Let's move to the next one. Here's a painting, as you see over there. These are the little wafers. And the Jews are torturing them. Okay? And this is from a church in Passau. And I understand somebody can laugh at it, but you want to say when I say don't laugh at it. It's not funny. Um, they use wafers for the uh, host, for, for the ceremony of uh, the Mass. Uh, you give the faithful, you know, they, what do you say, we eat the, it's a whole, the machogas, you hand it to them, they take it to whatever. He says, well, you know, we have our things. So, uh, wait a second. When you eat it, you say, I'm eating the body of Jesus. When drinking the wine, you're drinking the blood. Fine. Um, you know, if you don't, nowadays, if, when you buy crackers and wafers, they have preservatives, don't they? But no, it's, it's not funny. In those days, of course, they didn't. And so I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but some of you are. Uh, will, will red streaks, bacteria, and things like this appear on, 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 on wafers? They, they will. Molds of various types. Now, today, you use science language. You call it a mold, you call it a this, you call it that. But you understand where I'm going. Somebody says this, especially incredulous people, uh, here's the wafer which, which you're about to eat represents the body of Christ. Literally. It's got red streaks on it. What's that all about? In the 13th century. Okay? It's blood. What blood? It's been tortured. Who tortured it? The Jews. Why would they do that? They know that it's really true. They know the wafer is what we say it is. They say they don't believe it, but really they do. And the Jews have this evil, witchy side of them, which is that if they could kill Jesus again, they would do it. And this is how they do it every day, or when they have the opportunity. Now, how do you defend yourself against a charge like that? You know, what are you supposed to say? I know what a Jew would really like to say, so you guys mentally ill, but it's not funny. It's not funny if things happen as a result of it, and what's worse is you don't need a dead body. You just need a, a rumor or a wafer with red stuff on it. Okay? And you understand in real Catholic culture they carry ceremonial in the church, sometimes in the street. It's a, it, they take it very seriously. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's a pure guess on my part. Maybe there was some Jew who, or Jews who some stupid thing said, oh, there's a Jesus of blood and we killed him or something like that. I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong about that. Cause, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me because every Jewish community has this quota of stupid people. And, uh, you know, I mean, no, 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 I'm saying, and, and you can't make jokes about things like that. That's what I'm trying to get across. You can't make jokes about things when you live in such an environment. And I don't know that happened. It could have been it's not totally uh, made up on its own. All I know is it happened. And if you believe it, what could be more infuriating to a Christian? I mean, it doesn't get worse than that, right? It doesn't get more insults. What's the word? You know, it's as infuriating as it can get. 
And so what was the result? In the late 1200s, when the emperor position was being fought over a bunch of different nobles, two of them, and it was a certain chaos and there was nobody strong at, at the top, there occurs the Rindfleisch massacres of the summer of, of 1298. It was charged in a small town in Rentingen in South Germany, not far from in Bavaria, Franconia. It was charged that the Jews there desecrated a host. Uh, who, who started? We don't know. All we know is all the Jews were killed. The mob immediately ran and killed all the Jews in the town. Wait a minute. At that time, as I told you, there was no strong Holy Roman Emperor. The contenders are finding it out. That means local warlords, mob leaders can, can, can operate. Um, local police are not equipped to fight mobs any more than they are in Paris the other day to fight to protect the synagogue. Some dude named Rindfleisch, Rindfleisch in Germany is a meat, some dude named Rindfleisch claims God appeared to him in a vision and gave him permission to kill all the Jews. All the Jews. And so a mob gathers, eventually a small army, and they rampage all over South Germany and they wipe out entire Jewish communities. Würzburg, Rottenburg, Bamberg, Heilbronn, all these little communities that are famous in old days. Rottenburg is a uh, Rottenburg, the red city. After that, the Jewish uh, poets in the Piyutim write, is this, Ir Adomo Midam Odom. Rottenburg means it's red city, red from, the, from human blood. Okay? And uh, they all become scenes of terrible massacres. The massacres are so vicious because they torture the victims so badly that the Jews often prefer to lock themselves in their own homes and synagogues and burn the place down. So this is not what even happened by Hitler where they threw people in and burned the place. Here the Jews prefer to do that rather than fall in the hands of the bad guys. So you see how unbelievably vicious they were. In the free imperial city of Nuremberg, which is the big city in that area, the Jews run to their fortress and even the Christian citizens try to help them because they're good for the economy. But the mob overcomes the defenders and they butcher the Jews on the 1st of August. And they kill the whole yeshiva. Nuremberg was a big Malcolm Torah. The rabbi, there was one of the most famous rabbis of the Middle Ages, Mordechai. Some people familiar in the back of the Gemara is the Mordechai. Mordechai ben Hillel. Which is a very uh, important source. Uh, he, he was Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz. And then Mordechai is a wonderful savior. They collect stories of Gedolim. Uh, and that's how you know what the halacha is. You know, the Gemara says this, the Gemara says that, and then he writes it here. But Rabbeinu Tam did this. And Rashi once did this, and somebody came and criticized, and Rashi answered that. Or Maren Rottenberg once did this, and they asked him, it's against the Gemara, Rottenberg said, well, I do it for this reason. It's very much of an oral tradition. And uh, it's a very important saver. He, his wife, five kids, all just killed. Among the killed rabbis, they're very famous, interesting names because the Jews of Nuremberg later on returned years later and they started the tradition of the memoir book in which they keep the names of all the martyrs which they recite every Shabbos <laughs> not just the Yisker you know, some of them, every Shabbos and among them are Rav Avram HaKadosh Ger Tzedek the Hager Shenizgar Hashem this is already a movie they, they had a, a person who was a Rav in Nuremberg I mean it's Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz you, know, you, get, you don't get You'd think you can get more racist than that, you know, super elitist, all the rest of it. And one of the rabbis is a Ger, a Ger Tzedek. I just, I just read to you. Uh, now, Ger Tzedek, by the way, is a high madre. There's three levels of Ger. There's a Ger Tzedek, there's a Ger, and as I call it, uh. so the, uh, the well, that's, that's, that's the truth. But the Ger Tzedek is like Ruth. You understand? They came out of pure conviction. You, you pray. Don't forget that. Um, and they have someone else that they mention. Someone who converts to Judaism, which anyway, you're asking for a lot of trouble in the 1200s, during the year of the Rindfleisch massacres. So, I don't know, we'll never know what the story behind that is, but if, you, if, if you're ever in the mood of writing a novel, <laughs> or something, I mean, there it is. Why would somebody... But I mean, that's, that's, that's a Kiddush Hashem. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a Garrett Tzedek. You know, to, that's like saying I'm converting to Judaism in 1943. Okay? I mean, why would somebody do that? We will never know. Um, and 38. Again, here's another one. 38. Noshim Zekenes Valmonos. They attacked like, a, like we would say today an old age home. Right? And they killed 38 uh, elderly women. 
Ubohen Maris Richsa Hamis Paleles Shel Hanoshim. Right? She was the Zogarin, as they say. Used to have the shul, and used to have the lady shul next door. And they probably got like a certain hole in between. That's how they used to have an Ashkenaz. And by the way, this is male territory, and this is female territory. I don't want to get into it now, but it's very fascinating how they had Simchas Torah and other things. The men did it this way, and the women did it this way, and you know, A cannot cross into B, and B can't cross into A. You know, this was their territory. They had their own uh, auctioning of uh, honors and things like that. And uh, who is leading the services? There's a lady that knows Hebrew well. She's standing over here, and she's seeing how far they are in, in, in the davening. Then she's you know, leading everybody else over here. You know, they're up to Asher. Well, follow me. Asher, you know, they're up to Ishtabah, and so forth. So it's a very charming uh, type of community. All killed. All killed. And why? Because of that, it's not funny anymore. It's not a cute picture. Worse of all, uh, excuse me, 146 kehillas were wiped out. Wiped out. 146. Between 5,000 and 20,000 Jews. So that means that they're all small communities, what we call dwarf students, and uh, that's how life was lived uh, in, in general. And, well, I, I need not say any more. A few weeks after the massacre, a few weeks after the massacre, the winner in the emperor sweepstakes, Albert of Austria, shows up in Nuremberg. He executes Rindfleisch for killing the tax-paying Jews. <laughs> but, you know, not for hurting the Jews, for hurting my, my pocket. Uh, but the damage was already done, Okay. So this is a Habsburg over here. He's only interested. Uh, you know, he said he's only interested in his own in his own pocketbook. Worst of all, it shows how little protection the state provides. They'll come later on and pick up one or two people if it's in their interest. But if, what happened to the to the Jews and were killed and their property and all the rest of it? Worst of all, worst of all of all, the debts are dissolved. What happened to the IOUs is is gone. It's a Hitlerian logic. This is this, the danger. You know, what was the, I'm, I'm going to use this in a, in a uh, which I say, ironic sense. What was, what was the beauty of the Hitlerian logic? He said, if you kill them all, then you have to ring them. He said, if you kill them all, you know, that, that, that's a, a seductive evil. The Arabs dream of this at this moment. If you just kill them all, then you don't have to apologize. You have to do anything. Hitler's problem was he only killed Pope, so. And here also, he said, they killed all the Jews in the area. Then nobody have to feel bad about And if I owed money, it's over. You see, the emperor might kill one or two people, and then the rest again. So at the end of the day, was Rindfleisch a good guy or a bad guy? If you owe $10,000 or, or more money over there, he was a good guy. That's, that, that's rough. Because that reflects a reality that's going to be the Jewish reality throughout the Middle Ages and, and even afterwards. Unlike the blood libel, Neither emperor nor pope repudiates or ridicules the accusation that the Jews desecrate the host from time to time. Think about what I just said. He said, the Jews may not use volleyball, but this, the kind of stuff that I showed you before, that they uh, kind of do. Right? There's in, in Paris attacking the Schultz, as you know. This means it can be raised at any time and at any place in Christendom, and it will. But that's something that will... Uh, Attack next time. Since there's a war going on, so I just want to end on the note. I know you all join me. All those guys that are fighting on the front lines. We're closed for tonight. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.